Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. Since the right-wing activist judges on the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, pregnant people across the country have been put in great jeopardy. Our guests today are fighting back. Amanda Zorowski nearly lost her life when a Texas law prevented her from receiving an abortion after a medical emergency made her pregnancy non-viable. Molly Duane is an attorney helping Amanda and four other women sue the state of Texas in collaboration with the Center for Reproductive Rights. Let's talk about abortion. This week, one of the most restrictive abortion laws went into effect in Texas. The law prohibits abortions to take place as early as six weeks into pregnancy. Why force a rape or incest victim to carry a pregnancy to term? Rape is a crime, and Texas will work tirelessly to make sure that we eliminate all rapists from the streets of Texas. This country is getting a taste of not only what happens when you ban abortion, but when you allow religious zealots to write those abortion bans. Five women are suing Texas over the state's abortion ban. They all allege the ban put their lives at risk and has created confusion and fear among doctors. Hi, I'm Amanda Zorowski, and I'm fighting to restore reproductive rights. Sorry, not sorry. Amanda and Molly, thank you so much for joining the podcast. And Amanda, can I just start by asking you to tell us a bit about yourself and the reason you're here? What led you to sue the state of Texas? Yeah, absolutely. First of all, thanks for having me and having us. I live in Austin, Texas, and my husband and I got married in 2019. We've actually known each other since preschool. We met when we were four. And we knew very quickly after we got married that we wanted to start trying for a family. Kind of always known that we wanted kids. Unfortunately, it was a bit of a challenge for us to get pregnant naturally. And we learned that pretty quickly. So I had a lot of fertility treatments. And finally, after about a year and a half, was able to get pregnant with some assistance. And things were rolling really smoothly for the first trimester. At about 17 and a half weeks, things started to go south, though. And we learned very quickly and suddenly and shockingly that we were going to lose our baby girl. I had developed a condition called cervical insufficiency, which is essentially a fancy way of saying that my cervix was dilating too early. Obviously, it was just a day shy of 18 weeks. and. There was nothing the doctors could do, even though 
we were told that miscarrying was inevitable. We were absolutely, without a doubt, going to lose our baby. But they couldn't intervene. They couldn't provide health care that I needed because her heart was still beating and I wasn't considered in danger. And Texas had just very recently passed into law a ban on abortion that meant that technically what I needed was or could be considered an illegal abortion. So because my physicians couldn't intervene, what ended up happening to me was I had to wait three days until I got really sick. And I actually ended up developing sepsis, which is an infection in the blood that it can kill you. And it happened in a matter of minutes. So as a result of the lack of health care that I received, we're suing the state of Texas. I have to tell you, as you were talking about your daughter, I got goosebumps all over my body. But the goosebumps turned into total rage because I cannot wrap my head around how archaic and barbaric this is. And I really just want my listeners to fully understand the scope of this. This was a pregnancy that you wanted. Desperately. But was not viable, correct? Yes. Yep. So you live, as you said, in Austin, in Texas, a state where the legislature and governor who have enacted these barbaric abortion bans claim to be pro-life. And I think that this is where the rage comes from for me, just the total, I can't even call it hypocrisy because I feel like hypocrisy, at least there is some sort of believing in what you're doing and not understanding the duality of it. So to me, it's just malicious, almost marketing, because I think all of these bands claim to be pro-life, which has now become like a false advertising for the toxic and the extreme right. It's not even a real thing, because when your life was in danger because you could not terminate your pregnancy, which was not viable, a pregnancy that you desperately wanted, did you feel like you lived in a state that was pro-life? It's interesting you ask that because for me, it was about three days of waiting, right? After being given this horrific, traumatizing news, I had to then wait three days to get so sick that I almost died before I could get health care. And this was 2022. This was last August. It's the United States of America. My husband and I live in a big city with great health care. We have health insurance. Like This should not have been an issue. We shouldn't have had to beg for health care and then be denied over and over again. And I just kept saying, my husband's name is Josh. I just kept saying to Josh, I can't believe this is happening. Like It feels like we live in some sort of dystopian, twisted reality. Like How is this my reality? Does it not feel like it's getting worse? Yeah. It feels like it's getting worse on a rate that I feel like I can't catch up. I literally feel like I cannot catch up. How do you feel now, by the way? Furious still. 
Well, Cathy, it's hard to say. You can see them marching here past uh, behind me. Certainly there are multiple thousands of people turned out in DC today. Men and women, members of the LGBTQ plus community, members of the Black Lives Matter community, and lots and lots of families. I spoke to one woman who said she was here today for the sake of her children, for their rights, for their freedoms as the next generation. And all their message today is as simple as it is powerful, that only a woman should have the right to choose what happens to her body and not men sitting making laws in legislatures across America. How about physically, though? How is your health? I mean, I had sepsis. You feel like you're dying. If you don't get the health care, you will die. I mean, sepsis kills people. So how do you feel physically? So it took a while to recover physically, obviously, from the sepsis. And then to add insult to injury, I got COVID in the ICU. So I had to recover from that. So physically now, I am fully recovered from those things. However, long term, my fertility and my ability to have children is still in question. I had to have a number of tests, exams, even surgery to clear out the scar tissue that was in my reproductive organs. And we don't know if I can have kids now. God, Amanda, I am so sorry. I feel like the activism that I have done in my lifetime has failed you. I'm going to come back to you because I want to go to Molly Duane. I want to bring her into the conversation. Molly, tell our listeners about you and the work that you do. Sure. So I'm a senior staff attorney at the Center for Reproductive Rights, and I have been practicing reproductive rights law for about eight years. And it's been an interesting eight years, right? A lot has changed. When I first started this job, we were preparing for a very different Supreme Court than the one that we have now. We were thinking at the time that we might be able to do away with the financial restrictions that prevent lots of people from accessing abortion. And instead, here we are eight years later without Roe v. Wade, which I want to emphasize was the floor. It was the bare minimum, the bare minimum that pregnant people in this country needed to have their rights protected. And now what we're seeing is exactly what we told people would happen if abortion bans went into effect. Which, by the way, I feel like we've been talking about actively for a really long time. Like, we saw the writing on the wall. And so for me, it has been quite interesting to see not only activists, but also organizations that are in this space to be scrambling and shocked. This is why I sat in the Kavanaugh hearing. How many years ago? It's interesting because when you said that when you first became a lawyer, you had no idea that this would be where reproductive law would take you. But I have a bunch of friends who are immigration attorneys who have also said to me, you know, it's weird. Like, I got into this. I thought I'd be giving people the opportunity to live the American dream or to get out of these places that are so oppressive towards women or dangerous or wanting to give their families a better life. And then in the middle of just going about your daily job, everything starts to happen where it feels like your intended profession goes into a direction you had no idea it was going to go into. 
Is that how you feel? Or did you, when you were in law school and you chose this to be your focus, did you go, you know what? The Supreme Court's going to probably wind up being an activist court and going to roll back Roe v. Wade. I think I would say it a little bit differently from that because I always planned to spend my career fighting for reproductive rights and justice. As I said, Roe v. Wade was never enough. The promise of Roe v. Wade was never what it was in Austin, was never in the Rio Grande Valley of Texas what it was in Austin, Texas. So I knew I was going to spend decades trying to make human rights equal reproductive rights, for that to be real in real people's lives, regardless of their background, their income, who they are or where they were. What I didn't expect is that I might spend my whole career building back to the exact same place where I started, which is sometimes how it feels right now. But I have to say that there are things that are different now, post Roe v. Wade, that make me hopeful. Like what? Well, Amanda's a perfect example. I have talked to more women than I can count, have been in situations like Amanda's since Roe was overturned. And the thing that is different now is that people like Amanda want to speak out and tell their stories. For decades, it has been the reality that by design, abortion care is stigmatized. People try to remove it from the rest of healthcare. Women and pregnant people are made to feel guilty like they did something wrong, that abortion is something we shouldn't talk about. And I grew up in a household where I always knew that my mother had two abortions before my sister and I were born, and that was part of her reproductive journey. That is not how lots of people in this country feel, because that is not how the politicians and people in power have made them feel. And what is different now is that despite all that stigma, in spite of all of the obstacles that folks face in telling their stories publicly, in the scrutiny and the harassment that people like Amanda open themselves up to. Women are sharing their personal abortion experiences as a form of protest. Hashtag you know me started when actress Busy, Busy Phillips opened up about having an abortion on her talk show. The statistic is one in four women will have an abortion before age 45. And that statistic sometimes surprises people. And maybe you're sitting there thinking, I don't know a woman who would have an abortion. Well, you know me. I had an abortion when I was 15 years old. And I'm telling you this because I'm genuinely really scared for women and girls. They nonetheless want to be out there telling their stories. And I see my job now as just being a courier for them to help them find the venues, the places, people who need to hear their stories, all towards the mission of reconceptualizing what abortion access in this country was or is today and building towards a future where everyone acknowledges that abortion is healthcare. And more than that, abortion is a human right. And when people are denied access to abortion, they lose their rights to life, liberty, and equality. And so that's really what this lawsuit is about and what we are hoping to achieve. Tell us about the lawsuit and really specifically what you're looking to achieve. Like I said, this lawsuit was brought on behalf of women who were denied abortion care in Texas, notwithstanding the fact that Texas purports to have an exception to its abortion ban for quote-unquote medical emergencies. Now, I think the thing that gets lost in the national conversation about abortion, 
when you don't look at individual people's stories like Amanda's is that, oh, an abortion ban, a 15-week abortion ban, that's a compromise. Oh, a six-week abortion ban, that's okay because there are exceptions for rape, incest, life of the mother, rape, incest, life of the mother. But when you look closely, actually not even closely, you can look at it with one eye closed and see that those exceptions are not being employed in reality. As to rape and incest, in most states, you have to have a police report to be able to access the exception. And anyone who knows anything about sexual assault knows that it is very unlikely that people are going to report their sexual assaults to law enforcement. And that's for a variety of reasons. So full stop, rape and incest exceptions are not helping the people that folks think that they are. But critically as well, we're talking about a life exception, a health exception. These laws are written by people who certainly don't have medical degrees, but truly don't even know how to write a law that any physician or medical professional would know how to follow. Or have a uterus. (laughs) In some cases, certainly, yes. You look at these laws, and if I were a medical professional, I wouldn't know what was included or excluded either. And in a state like Texas, where the politicians are running around saying they're going to come after every doctor, we're talking about Texas here, which has a vigilante bounty hunting scheme in place, in addition to its outright abortion ban. So it's no wonder that doctors are scared about themselves, about the medical technicians, their families. What happens to me if I provide this abortion? I may end up in prison for the rest of my life if a jury second guesses my judgment. Since Roe was overturned, states around the country are enacting bans similar to Texas. And this creates a situation where patients like Amanda and their physicians basically have to choose between protecting their own lives or facing criminal charges. Is this in any way what the Constitution intends? I want to come back to a question you asked me earlier before I I touch on that. You know, what our lawsuit is doing is in some ways pretty small. We're just asking for some clarity around what this exception means and saying at a bare minimum, patients like Amanda should be getting abortion care in Texas in a timely, safe, and medically appropriate way. Now, what else are we asking for in the lawsuit? We're saying, if you don't agree with us, that is what this exception means, then that exception is a violation of the state constitution. You asked me what the constitution protects. Something that is common across every state constitution and the federal constitution is protection of the rights to life, liberty, and equality. So you can say that there's no explicit right to abortion in the constitution. You can argue about that all day long, but I think we'd all be able to agree that a right to life is something that is basic and intrinsic to one's ability to pursue all the other dreams that they have in their life. And if you look at this with a human rights framework, what does that mean? Certainly, it must mean a right to life with dignity, to have children, to parent those children in the way that you see fit, to enjoy your life, to pursue the things that bring you joy. And it is just a fact. These bans, even for the patients who are lucky enough to be able to travel out of state to access abortion care, these laws are severely damaging their ability to live a life with dignity. So I have a question. We are recording this on April 24th. This morning it was announced by Senator Schumer and Gloria Steinem, actually, that there will be a vote on the Equal Rights Amendment this week, on Thursday. 
which is extremely exciting. And this has been, I call it my tombstone issue. I am thrilled that we're getting a vote, not that I think that it's actually going to pass in the Senate, because obviously it has to do with women. Alyssa, welcome. Hello. It's, it's great to have you with us. Just give us your reaction to the, the failure of today's vote. This has been a long time coming. I don't think it's a failure at all. I think what, what we have to look at is this is a continuation of the conversation, thanks to uh, Schumer's procedural vote, uh, to ensure that we get to bring it back in this session. But I'm excited because I want it down on the record. Who thinks women should not have equal protections in the Constitution other than, specifically, other than the 14th Amendment? So I want to read you the simple text of Section 1 of the Equal Rights Amendment. Equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. Do you think if we had the Equal Rights Amendment in the Constitution, it would give you the basis and the foundation to fight this lawsuit on discrimination? I wish I could give you a simple answer, but the truth is that rights written down on paper don't mean anything unless there is someone there to enforce them and courts to uphold them. So let's say in a hypothetical world, the Equal Rights Amendment passes and becomes part of the Constitution. Are we done? Should I retire? Should I go find a different job? Far from it. No, but I think it's exciting that perhaps you have another tool to fight with. That's right. And it would be another tool to fight with, but it's not enough. To be able to solve this problem, we have to remake this government. And this applies beyond abortion care. You mentioned immigration law. So many of our partner movements are struggling so much right now because there is a lack of human rights focus in the way that our politicians are acting right now. It's guns above people. I'm going to say it's not just the Republicans. There are some Democrats that also are finding themselves on the wrong side of these issues. That's certainly true. And I think from my perspective, regardless of what changes in the law happen, it's going to take decades of work from activists, and that includes lawyers like me, but I think actually it includes much more prominently people like Amanda, because nothing is more powerful than personal storytelling. But it's going to take decades of us remaking the judiciary, the legislative branch, the executive branch. It's going to take a long time, and I hope I live to see it, but at the least I hope to leave my son and daughter a world that is better to all the other human beings around us. Molly, how can women who are finding themselves in these similar situations fight these laws? Tough question, because what I can tell you is that what happened to Amanda is not an isolated incident. It is not something that only happens in Texas. It is not something that only happened last year, but isn't happening today, tomorrow, and the next day. It's happening everywhere. And I wish I could give you a simple solution. I think being informed. Every pregnant person should know the laws in their state and should be willing to advocate for themselves, but they're in a very vulnerable place. I think all three of us have been through multiple pregnancies and know that it is not black and white. Things are not so simple. So it's hard to say to someone, just because you live in Texas, you need to have an escape plan for how to get out of the state if you need it. But that's where we are right now. And all I can say is that 
my phone number and email are easy to find online. If anyone needs legal help, the Center for Reproductive Rights and similar organizations are here to help, and we're doing it every day. I want to go back to Amanda. How has this experience impacted your life? Oh, I don't even know where to start (laughs) to answer that question. It doesn't have to be a linear answer. It doesn't have to be specific. Tell me how you feel now versus how you felt then. And are you hopeful? I am incredibly grateful for the opportunity to advocate and the opportunity to hopefully make a small difference in this world and in this country. You know, like Molly said, not just today and tomorrow, but for the future. And I think something that a lot of people forget or choose to ignore about myself and my fellow plaintiffs is that at the root of all of this is an immense amount of grief and sorrow because we all suffered loss and people forget about that. When we talk about our stories and we revisit what happened to us time and time again, it does not get easier. Anybody who's lost anyone that's close to them knows how paralyzing grief can be. But to have this incredible opportunity to use my grief and sorrow for activism and advocacy and hopefully for change and for good, I cannot tell you how healing that has been for me. I think there are many citizen activists that I know who make the most impact that were overnight activists, not because they wanted to be, but because they felt like they had to be. And I will tell you, Amanda, that Those are the activists that actually change the world. People like Fred Guttenberg, who lost his daughter, Jamie, in Parkland, who took his grief and gave it purpose and used his grief in a sense of service. And so thank you for what you're doing. And I know it can't be easy. So I know, I think, what you want people who just, you know, normal citizens to know about your experience, what you want them to know. What do you want the people who make and enforce the laws to know about you and what you went through? I want them to know that the laws that they're passing and the legislature that they are supporting are having real impacts on real people. I wanted to address my senators, Cruz and Cornyn, who uh, neither of whom regrettably are in the room right now. But I would like for them to know that what happened to me, I think most people in this room would agree, was horrific. But it's a direct result of the policies that they support. I nearly died on their watch. And furthermore, as a result of what happened to me, I may have been robbed of the opportunity to have children in the future. And this isn't, like Molly said, an isolated incident. I am not, unfortunately, a member of a small group of people that this has happened to and that it will continue to happen to. And unless they do something about it, it's not going to change. And if a lawmaker wants to look me in the eye and say, yes, what happened to you is just and that's exactly what we want and exactly what we intend, how are you going to argue with that? But I just don't think that can possibly be what someone would support. Anyone who says that they're pro-life, how can you possibly be supportive of that? And not only my life, what about the lives of my 
future babies that I may or may not be able to have. Because what happened to me has a long-term, potentially permanent impact on my ability to have kids again. Molly, if this lawsuit wins, what changes? So if we are successful in this lawsuit, it will mean that people like Amanda, other people who need abortion in urgent, emergent medical situations, will be able to access abortion care in their home communities. Is that enough? No, of course not. But it does lay the foundation for establishing abortion as a human right, as a necessary element of healthcare going forward. And the Center for Reproductive Rights is a global organization. We work in countries around the world. And if you look at the decriminalization efforts and liberalization efforts around abortion access in countries like Colombia, Mexico, Ireland, and Kenya, those efforts often started with a case like this, a woman like Amanda who was denied abortion care in an emergency. And if I can, I want to talk a little bit about some of the other plaintiffs in our lawsuit, because I think talking about their stories is illustrative as well. Two of the plaintiffs, Lauren Miller and Ashley Brandt, were pregnant with twins, actually, and were progressing through their pregnancies, excited to, both of their cases actually, already had an older child and were looking forward to a family of three. And in both of their cases, discovered midway through pregnancy that one of the twins would not survive. And more concerning, that continuing a pregnancy with both twins would put the healthy twin and the individual at risk of surviving. So talk about being pro-life. Being pro-life is allowing both of them to have an abortion procedure that allows them and their other child to survive and be able to parent and be a sibling to the child that they already had. And in both of their cases, they had to travel out of state to get that abortion procedure. I want to actually tell a story to you that Ashley told me recently, because we've talked a little bit about the legislators who passed these laws. Now, your listeners might not know that being a legislator in Texas is a part-time job, The legislature only meets every other year. So all of the folks who are legislators in the Texas legislature have other jobs that that they perform, right? Ashley has her abortion procedure out of state. Her pregnancy continues without incident medically, although obviously emotionally she was terrified every day of the rest of her pregnancy and kept savings on hand in case she'd need to travel out of state again. But there she is with a full-term baby getting her epidural. And she's chatting with her anesthesiologist who tells her, did you know that I'm a Texas legislator? What? Yeah. Starts bragging about being a Texas legislator and the fact that he's passed all these bills and says to her, so this is your second kid. Are you going to try for a third? Not knowing her history, right? Now, obviously, she broke into tears and tells him the story of how she was pregnant with twins and lost one of them. And he was pretty quiet after that. But you know what? I looked him up and guess which bills he supported? All of the abortion bans that are being challenged in this lawsuit. So I certainly hope that his experience with Ashley helped him think differently in the future. But it's going to be a long road to convince the folks who have supported these laws that they are not pro-life. They are not pro-woman. They are not pro-pregnant person. They are cruel by design. 
A new Texas law allows groups to put those words on signs on public schools, campuses, which has, of course, sparked controversy. Separation of church and state, of course, a conversation. Texas House Representative Tom Oliverson is joining me right now. He co-authored the bill. Thank you so much for being with us on Morning in America. You say the statement, in God we trust, is broad and nonspecific. But for some who might say it's a breach of the separation of church and state, how do you defend this? So I, I appreciate the chance to be on your show today. I would say a couple of things. Number one, uh, the court system has looked at this. The Supreme Court has looked at this. Um, and the national motto is a, a, a very patriotic statement. It meshes well with other practices and observances that we see in, in every public school, things that kids would be familiar with, like saying the Pledge of Allegiance. Uh, it also has a significant historical and cultural significance uh, in our country. Uh, belief in higher power essentially is what grants us inalienable rights. And here's the other thing. A lot of these bans, these attacks on women's autonomy, are brought on by religious organizations, but would affect every woman, whether they're members of these organizations or religions or not. How is that okay? And how can a religious organization have legal standing to dictate medical decisions for pregnant people? This goes back to the conversation we were having about it's one thing for the words to be written on a piece of paper. It's quite another to ask whether or not there are lawyers and activists to enforce the law. Our constitution protects a right to freedom of religion, but also protects against the right to establishment of religion. And the way if you want to talk about what the founders envisioned, it was certainly those two things operating as a counterweight to each other. But what we have seen in the law as it has developed, particularly over the last century, is that one of those is being favored over the other. And I can't really tell you why, but what I do know is that my religion is not the religion that seems to be taking over and taking precedent over individual people's rights to control their own lives and freedoms. So it's definitely something that is deeply troubling to me as a lawyer in the United States, but it's not something that I have the answer to right now. You mentioned this incident before where a woman had to leave their state to receive health care. Some states are even trying to make that illegal. And Amanda, you were so sick. Would you have been able to leave the state if you needed to? So a lot of people ask me, why didn't you leave the state or did you consider leaving the state? Which, first of all, not even a decision that you should have to make in 2022 in the United States of America. And again, Texas is a huge state. We live right in the middle of it. To get out of it in any direction is eight hours. To get to the nearest sanctuary state where we could have gotten health care is 11 hours. That's not something that you should even have to consider in today's America. But it is. And we did. But we looked it up and, you know, found the nearest place and considered getting a flight. But one of the physicians that we saw of the many times that we went to the hospital and were turned away, one of those physicians that we saw said, you really shouldn't be farther than 10, 15 minutes from a hospital in case you go into labor or get sick. I got so sick so fast that if it had happened 30,000 feet above air in an airplane or if we had been in the middle of the Texas desert, I don't think I'd be here talking to you today because I went from seemingly healthy to teeth chattering, 
shaking uncontrollably, couldn't put a sentence together. My temperature went from normal to 103. You can imagine the outcome had that happened on an airplane or in the middle of nowhere. And Molly, where does this end? I mean, will women just simply have to die to comply with the laws? I want to touch on what Amanda was just saying first, because it's interesting that you ask her that question, because one of the other plaintiffs in our lawsuit, Anna Zargarian, did just that. She was in the same situation as Amanda, actually also in Austin, Texas. She decided to travel for an abortion. Now think about that for a moment. She's in Austin, Texas. It's a 12-hour drive to New Mexico, or it's a two-hour flight to New Mexico or Colorado. So she had a conversation with her OB, literally a conversation with her OB about if I'm going to go into labor or become septic, which is less dangerous. Right. And because of what Amanda just said about being stuck in rural New Mexico or Texas, I'm from New Mexico. I've done that drive. You do not want to have a medical emergency somewhere in between New Mexico and Texas. There are no hospitals. There are no towns. There's just tumbleweeds. So she decided to take the flight to Colorado and paid extra for a seat at the front of the plane near the bathroom. And she said it was the most terrifying two hours of her life. Can you imagine? So luckily she made it. But what would have happened if if she didn't? The Despains were faced with a choice. Kaylee could risk her life and give birth to a baby who would die quickly or go out of state and have an abortion. How could you be so cruel as to pass a law that you know will hurt women and that you know will cause babies to be born in pain? He was going to die a painful death. So how is that humane? How is that saving anybody? They decided to travel to New Mexico. Texas law prohibits insurance companies from paying for abortions in most cases, so Cade said he had to convince a relative to give them thousands of dollars. What has to happen? I think certainly people are going to die if they haven't already and we just don't know about them. There was a study out of the University of Texas Southwestern that looked at patients like Amanda who had premature labor and showed that at least one needed a hysterectomy, but the health outcomes for all of them were extremely poor compared to what the medical standard of care would be in any other state. That study was conducted after SB8. The bounty hunting law went into effect in 2021. So this regime is something that Texas has been living under much longer than any other state in the country. So we know that health outcomes will be poor. We know that people will lose their fertility. We know that they will most certainly die. But I want to stress that people don't need to die for us to be concerned. What happened to Anna, what happened to Amanda, what happened to all of the plaintiffs in our lawsuit was extremely traumatizing, if not completely physically debilitating, and is something that should not be happening in a civilized nation anywhere in the world. And I just have to say, Amanda can speak to this, but since we filed our lawsuit, we have just had an outpouring of support from other women and pregnant people who say, your story is my story. The same thing happened to me. And in a way, it's heartening, but obviously on the whole, it's just terrifying. It's just so cruel and inhumane.
I think people think that we're just going to be able to reverse it and it'll go back to some sense of health and normalcy. That's just not how it's going to work. We may never see it get better in our lifetimes. That doesn't mean we can't fight for that. And how can people support the work that both of you are doing? Well, I can start. I think there are a number of things that people can do. Obviously, they need to vote. They need to pay attention. If they have had challenging pregnancies, I would encourage them to tell their friends about it. This whole thing about I don't talk about my pregnancy until 14 weeks, I actually think that's really damaging because then it means that people are alone with their grief in those times or that they feel shameful about it. So I think speaking up about what people have been through is a really important way to start changing the conversation. I also would encourage folks to support their local abortion funds. And if they live in a state where abortion is banned, you can donate to the National Network of Abortion Funds or abortion funds in states nearby. For folks who don't know, abortion funds are the organizations that help people pay for abortion care and pay for the travel and logistical support that folks need, plane tickets, car rides, child care, all these things. Not so easy to jump on a flight to Seattle for an emergency abortion at the last minute. Obviously, they should follow the Center for Reproductive Rights and the work that we're doing on the national and global stage. But I would also encourage them to have difficult conversations with their friends and family. If you have that uncle at Thanksgiving, maybe next time try and have the conversation with him about abortion. Talk about Amanda's story. Talk about Anna's story. Talk about Ashley's story. Because another thing that I have heard consistently from every woman who's had this situation, the thing I've heard consistently from all of them is, I have conservative friends. I have conservative relatives. My mom is a MAGA extremist, all of the above. And they all say, this changed their mind. They thought the abortion ban didn't apply to me, but it does. And this has them thinking differently about it. And I think there's real power in that. I want to add to that because my husband and I have seen that firsthand, right? Even before some of our activism and advocacy work, we had really hard, really lengthy discussions with our friends and family. We're from the Midwest. We come from conservative families. I have family in the South as well. And these are folks who went from voting Republican straight ticket to voting Democrat. And I think the legislators in Indiana and South Carolina have gotten an enormous amount of letters from our friends and family of rage. And that's a result of of conversation and difficult conversation. Certainly it's not easy to do, but it has to happen. Education is crucial. I think the only way to change the narrative that the extreme right has put out there is to counter it with truth and honesty and integrity and heartfelt experience. My last question for both of you is something that I always ask my guests last, because oftentimes we do hear these stories that are so devastating or feel so hopeless. So my question is, what gives you both hope? I think for me, I've been pretty public about our story and what happened to us. And certainly there are folks who are hateful and vengeful and nasty, but those people are outweighed 10, 20, 50, 1,000 times over by the love and the support. And strangers, Alyssa, that I don't even know, asking if they can do things for me. 
I'm talking hundreds of people from all across the country, all across the world. People care and they're paying attention and they are good. People like Molly and her colleagues who are willing to dedicate their profession to this. People like you, Alyssa, who are giving space to this story, who are fellow advocates. You all give me hope and you are the reason that we can keep going. As I said, this is incredibly hard. It does not get easier. It does not get easier to talk about what happened to me the more I do it. I mean, this is exhausting every time I will cry after this, <laughs> but I'll pick myself up and I'll do it again because it's not just for me and my other plaintiffs. It's for every other pregnant person. It's for every child that needs us to fight this fight. That's why we're doing it. And one of the things that I'm very hopeful about is that we are one of the first people to be open and public and we're one of the first lawsuits. Molly, correct me if I'm wrong. We might be the very first lawsuit. So hopefully that gives other people who may go through something similar the courage that they need to take similar action. Somebody has to do it first. And I didn't want to be here. I want to be with my three-month-old baby right now. Unfortunately, life handed me a different deck of cards. And so if I can give courage to other people to stand up and do something similar, that gives me an enormous amount of hope. Molly? Well, I'll keep mine simple because I've said it already, but what gives me hope is Amanda. That's what makes me cry. (laughs) Molly, I almost made it. I almost made it. (laughs) Me too. Me too. Molly and Amanda, you both give me hope. Thank you for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. As someone who believes in this country and believes in democracy, Uh, When votes happen in Congress, you know, hundreds or sometimes thousands of miles away from where most of us live, it can feel really distant and impersonal. And that's not how I see this vote. And it's not how I hope that every American woman sees this vote. Because when anti-woman Republicans say that we don't belong in the Constitution, It's personal. It's personal that I don't have the same rights and protections as the men who sexually assaulted me. It's personal that those same men can access the full spectrum of reproductive health care in their doctor's office. But Republicans in Congress say that I, as a woman, cannot. It's personal when judges approve by anti-women Republicans make rulings banning medication that only women take, rulings which will be unconstitutional the second the ERA becomes the law of the land. It's personal when a woman in Texas has to be on death's door due to an infection caused by a non-viable pregnancy before she can receive life-saving health care. It is personal for a child who is raped when she is forced by her government to leave the state to just to receive medical care. Women will die because of what Republicans are trying to do. And you better believe that I take that personally. But there is so much good news today. And the foundation of this good news is that we can do something about it. The only time women are specifically mentioned in the Constitution is the 19th Amendment where we were finally granted the right to vote. We're going to use that right. Uh, 
to kick every Republican who votes against us out of office. And I hope that they take it personally when they lose their jobs, because that's how we'll mean it. There are more women than men in this country. We are the largest voting bloc in the United States. We are not going to sit down. We are not going to shut up. We will not go away. E-R-A now. If this episode didn't prove to you that abortion is health care and that the immoral attacks on abortion from zealots on the right have no place in our nation, then the problem is with you. These draconian, spiteful laws have victims, and those victims are usually women going through some of the most challenging moments of their lives. There is nothing pro-life about jeopardizing Amanda's very existence. Across the country, this story will continue to play out, but we have the power to do something about it. Americans support access to abortion care, and we're already showing up at the polls. The midterm elections proved it. The recent elections in Wisconsin proved it. We are going to take power back, and we are going to keep our right to safe and effective health care in this nation. The only question is, how many women are the Republicans going to kill before we get there? Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson. Audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bulliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry. Not sorry.